And in these times, in these times of real stress, even in these times, during these challenging times, these difficult times, in these times of COVID-19. In these times has been a handy turn of phrase in 2020, with varying adjectives used to modify it. Difficult, unique, strange. What started as a useful shorthand for the COVID-19 pandemic became used to describe worldwide protests and calls for racial justice. This fall, the Omnia podcast goes beyond the shorthand, using COVID-19 as a platform for a six-episode series that explores the science, social science, and history that has shaped events in 2020. In these times, knowledge is more important than ever. I'm Alex Schein. Today we talk to a biologist, two sociologists, and a philosopher of science. This is episode one, Dimensions of the COVID-19 Crisis. Viruses are non-living uh, entities in that they don't they are not independently viable, but they can infect and co-opt living cells of all kinds, bacterial cells, fungal cells, human cells, uh, plant, uh, plant cells. David Roos is the E. Otis Kendall Professor of Biology. He researches infectious disease biology, viruses, and parasites. Most, although not all, animal viruses are, are themselves look a little bit like little cells. They are surrounded by a membrane the way an animal virus is surrounded by a membrane. And they invade into that cell either by fusing with the membrane of the cell, say in the respiratory epithelium of the lung, uh, releasing their genetic contents into the cell where it then takes over cellular machinery to replicate. My colleague and Omnia writer, Jane Carroll, sat down with Professor Roos to talk about the emergence of COVID-19 last spring while he was teaching a course on infectious disease biology and epidemiology. I understand you were teaching last spring when the virus outbreak began. So what were your first thoughts when you heard about it? Um, This year, when I was putting together the uh, syllabus, I did include a sentence indicating that the outbreak in what was then in Wuhan might be something that we would wind up wanting to follow. And of course, as it happened, as something we talked about informally in class for the first half of the semester, and, uh, and once Penn suspended classes, most of our discussion was about coronavirus. Many questions still remain about COVID-19. As knowledge evolves, scientists can take into account what they already know about virus behavior. We take the question of why it is that influenza virus disappears in the summer, that we have mm-hmm. outbreak in, in the winter, we can uh, gain insight into that from looking at the genetic sequence of influenza uh, viruses, ask about their similarities and differences, and ask, for example, does the influenza virus that shows up in Philadelphia in December of 2020 look like the influenza virus that it was in Philadelphia in December of 2019, as if it just went to sleep and then woke, woke up again? Or does it look like the influenza virus that was circulating in June of 2020 in Australia or Argentina in the Southern Hemisphere, where they went during, during their winter? If the virus is going to sleep, we would want to try to understand where it was sleeping and why. 
And if the virus is not going uh, uh, asleep but is migrating, we would want to understand how it migrates and we would want to understand why that virus is, is not infectious or is not transmissible during the summertime. So okay. similar kinds of experiments would apply to coronavirus, um, many of them very low tech. So you could imagine, for example, taking a sample of virus, influenza or coronavirus or HIV or whatever, and spraying it into the air in small aerosolized droplets, spraying it into the air of larger droplets, like the droplets you can see if someone coughs or sneezes, mm -hmm. or painting it, let's say, onto a tabletop or onto a piece of fruit or onto a computer keyboard or onto a, onto a doorknob, and then asking an hour later, two hours later, a day later, two days later, a week later, two weeks later, is the virus still there? These are the kinds of studies that go into the concerns about washing hands or whether you should quarantine eating vegetables and whether and and the, and similarly the viability of virus in large droplets or small droplets or in the air give rise to the recommendations about whether to stay three feet away or six feet away or right. 10 feet away or wear a cloth mask or an N95 mask or stay indoors or outdoors. There's another aspect of COVID-19 scientists are following closely, mutation. One of the real triumphs, I think, of the science in the COVID era have been the, the extent to which information from around the world has been shared in a variety of different ways. Roos is a particular fan of a site called nextstrain.org, maintained by the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Institute, or Fred Hutch, in Seattle. The site is designed to track the evolution and distribution of viruses. From that, for example, we can look at the evolution of the virus, the emergence of the virus in, in China, the accumulation of, of random mutations in, in the genome, and mm -hmm. by those signatures, like fingerprints and in individual viruses, we can ask about whether whether the virus that is observed in a virus that's observed in Seattle in January um, came from China or from elsewhere, and from those kinds of studies, we know, for example, that there were two major waves of entry of the virus into the U.S. One that came directly from China in Seattle. Uh, in, I think, late December or early January, and one mm -hmm. somewhat later uh, in, in New York, mm -hmm. where, the, where, where the most closely related recent ancestors had been in Europe. So they mm -hmm. migrated from China to Europe and from there to the U.S. Right. And of course, now there's been much more widespread transmission all over. But what we see is not the mutations that occur as they've occurred, but the mutations that have persisted. And those mutations may have persisted because of random chance, but also by virtue of selection. So that, mm -hmm. that, that selection may, that, that process of natural selection may occur, for example, um, whereby a, 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 a rabbit that has has, has acquired random mutations that, that lead it to run less quickly, get, gets eaten more quickly by a mm -hmm. fox. And so you no longer, th those mutations that right. slow the rabbits running 
will no longer show up because those rabbits are dead. Right. <laughs> and there are similar situations in viruses. There can be cases of positive selection as well. You might imagine, for example, that mutations that led the rabbit to run more quickly would be would lead that rabbit to survive, pass along its mutations to its offspring, which would right. then propagate more readily. And we can see the same kinds of signatures in viruses and statistical techniques have been devised to distinguish between uh, chance mutation and mutation that is under selection. The chief selection pressure in humans is likely to be mediated by the human immune response. Understanding COVID-19 mutations is essential to developing a vaccine. When you're exposed to a virus through infection or vaccination, you develop antibodies. The antibodies protect you from future infection, but only if the virus does not mutate in a major way. In my generation, um, all got measles. This is a very highly transmissible virus. It raced through a school and everyone would wind up being infected. I had measles right. as a child mm -hmm. and that infection gave me an immunity that appears to be lifelong. So mm -hmm. though I may encounter measles virus, but I won't get sick as mm -hmm. my body fights off that infection. Right. In contrast, the biology of influenza virus as it migrates around the world means that the virus is being selected and evolving in the Southern hemisphere so that when it comes back to the Northern hemisphere, my exposure will no longer protect me from that virus and hence the need for vaccination when the infection every year. We don't really know in what category uh, SARS-CoV-2 lies, but today, looking at the mutations that have arisen and signatures of selection that ask whether this virus seems to be evolving under control or in response to immune attack suggests that it's probably more like measles in that regard rather than influenza, which means that, that a vaccine is, is, is likely to be possible and is likely to be reasonably protective. How long that protection will last is, is at this stage, I believe, um, completely unknown. But, but I think that the the, the, the likelihood is that the vaccine will be possible. The likelihood is that it will be, that, that it will be protective for at least um, some period of time. Professor Roos has been researching and teaching from home since the pandemic began. He's also been talking to people about COVID-19 in all sorts of virtual settings. He welcomed questions from students' family members and ran Zoom info sessions for people in his hometown in New Hampshire. He cautions that he's a scientist not a public health worker or a counselor, but he's thought about what to say when people ask his opinion. I guess my advice to people would just be to try to use some common sense to, to minimize the risk to yourself and to others. That means keeping in mind that whatever risk you might personally want to take, your behavior also affects your neighbors. I'm cognizant of the fact that if I don't wear a mask when I'm outside, it makes my across-the-street neighbor who's in her 90s uh, fearful of walking outdoors. If for no other reason, I would wear a mask for that reason alone. I take whatever precautions I can, but I try not to get too anxious about it. I have little doubt that we will get through this. 
Bruce's point about his neighbor is an important one. Some people are more vulnerable than others, and that vulnerability is complicated. We talked about the social factors that impact risk with Regina Baker and Courtney Bowen, both assistant professors of sociology. Baker studies how individual, structural, and institutional factors create, maintain, and reproduce poverty and inequality. Bowen, also an Axelrod faculty fellow, focuses on the social determinants of population health inequality. Professor Bowen identifies three ways COVID creates differential impacts, risk of exposure, severity of the disease, and access to health care. All of these are shaped by inequality. So we can think about who's an essential worker, who's able to stay home, who has caregiving responsibilities, who lives in a multi-generational household, right? So these are all factors that shape how likely you are to come in contact with the virus and, and be infected. And, you know, one thing that's been getting a lot of publicity is thinking about people with chronic disease and pre-existing health conditions being at increased risk. But again, we know that there are inequalities in terms of who has chronic disease and existing health problems that might put them at higher risk. And again, this is really shaped by inequality. The third thing that I think about is once you're sick and you interface with the healthcare system, there's inequalities there that produce differential outcomes. So number one, do you have access to health insurance um, that sort of lifts some of the barriers in terms of accessing care? Do you have access to quality care? We know that there's bias and racism within the healthcare system, for example, um, that differentially treats people based on things like race, ethnicity, immigration status, language. And so all of these things also serve to create differential patterns of COVID um, both the exposure, the severity, and, and eventually um, differential risks of death and survival. The phrase essential worker has been used frequently since the pandemic began. Professor Baker points out that being essential doesn't guarantee protection. So when it comes to thinking about the jobs that are basically keeping our society running, right, and those are likely to be minorities, those are likely to be individuals with lower incomes, right, and so that puts them at a greater exposure to getting COVID, right? Um, and so all these things, I think, are so essential um, when it comes to thinking about COVID, COVID exposure, and disparate outcomes as a result of that. And I think that um, particularly when it comes to poverty, it's, it's such an important piece um, to understanding the, the health outcomes and what's happening um, here. I'll just add that I think, you know, we're all talking about COVID, about the pandemic, and the inequalities that we're seeing are so real in this moment. But I think for folks that have really been studying population health outcomes or inequalities in poverty and economic opportunities, these are, are tragic, and, but they're not surprising, right? And so I think the important part to, to remember is that the inequalities that we're seeing in COVID infection rates and in COVID deaths mirror so many of the inequalities that we've been seeing in the United States for centuries. And so none of us should really be surprised. We should be devastated and angered, but not surprised by them. When someone is affected by COVID-19, there is a ripple effect what Bowen calls collateral consequences. So one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is the collateral consequences of the pandemic for those not just who are sick, but for all the people who love and care about and think about those people. 
So there's been, you know, lots of work showing what happens when a family member gets sick, lots of research showing the devastating consequences of caring for a loved one when they're sick, of losing a loved one. And the consequences are grave, right? They're financial. Um, if you're taking on new responsibilities in your house for taking care of children or grandparents or helping family members out in times of need. There have been, you know, numerous studies, for example, showing, you know, highly unequal deaths by race from COVID. Um, Black Americans are just dying at staggering rates. And that means that Black individuals across the United States are carrying a much heavier burden when it comes to COVID, when it comes to the collateral damages of those losses. Um, so even if you are not sick, it is much more likely if you are Black to, to know people who have been sick or know people who have died um, and to carry the weight of that grief, of that stress and worry, um, the financial consequences of that. So, so I think it's important in the context of the pandemic. I mean, all of us feel worry to some extent um, for ourselves, for our loved ones, for society in general, but that burden is also very highly unequally shared across the population. You think about how stressful this is for everybody, right? And it's a privilege for people like us to say that, oh, we're stressed because we have to can't worry about childcare or we have to be at home another day, right? That's very different than being stressed and grieving because somebody else in the neighborhood died of COVID or another family member is in the hospital, right? Um, that adds such a, a whole nother layer that I think is important for us to, to think about in terms of these long-term effects on people's you know, mental health, which is tied to your physical health, right? And just over dynamics and what that does in thinking about like a community um, itself and the families within it. This is where politics comes in. The inequalities professors Baker and Bowen are talking about have existed for a long time. COVID has simply highlighted them. How can we address these inequalities and protect the health of all members of our community in the long term? So lots of countries across the globe have managed to um, contain COVID in lots of ways using old school public health practice like contact, you know, widespread testing and tracing and isolating combined with robust public investment in things like worker protections, um, economic relief packages, um, and worker protections, right? And so we're holding out hope for this vaccine a lot of times in the, in the popular press or in public conversations without recognizing we have decades of research showing that things like um, providing universal paid sick leave, providing um, living wages, providing secure housing, providing stable universal childcare, that these things greatly reduce population health burdens, right? And so some of our best um, research comes from seasonal flu data that shows when workers have, for example, access to paid sick leave, unsurprisingly, worker um, infection rates drop, right? And so we can imagine that's something we could do tomorrow if we wanted to. So that's not a question of scientific discovery like we're hinging on with the vaccine, but really a question of political will. 
Are we willing to put in place the guaranteed social and economic protections for workers and for households and for schools and childcare providers that we know would reduce infection rates? Like we know how to contain this without a vaccine. Other countries have showed us, and, and, and in fact, some states within the United States have showed us that investment in public health, investment in, in social and economic well-being and equity matters. Um, and yet we're choosing not to, right? And so, so for me, we have many of the answers in our back pocket. It's a question of whether or not politically we can make them happen. Yes, and I t- totally agree with everything that Professor Bowen said. She hit the nail on the head there, right, in terms of thinking about the ways that you know states and the, the federal government can truly make a difference in what we're seeing and what's going to happen long term, right? One key thing, as Professor Bowen pointed out, is public investments, right? And even before all this COVID, um, you know, this COVID pandemic, our lack of public investments is something that, you know, as an equality scholar we've seen makes a difference in terms of the U.S. having high rates of Child poverty, for example, higher, you know, higher than many of our, um, you know, peer countries, you know, in the same, um, at the same level, who are the same economic level as us, right? Um, and, and when it comes to, like, the pandemic, the same, the same, some of these same things that are important for helping to, re- to constrain the pandemic are also important um, for helping people um, stay afloat, right? And things that we need, we, we, like universal child care, right? Or just child care support, that's something that we need. Um, and at the state level, you know, thinking about the states that have been able to um, help contain the virus and what are they providing and what are they doing in terms of, you know, putting these, these restrictions um, in terms of social distancing and not, you know, opening things too early, right? And making masks a requirement and things like that, that we see clearly from other countries are working. Um, but there's so many people, you know, so many governments, state governments who, for whatever reason, are choosing not to do that, um, choosing to make those, those informed Decisions that are based on, you know, dec- decades of, you know, health research and choosing not to listen to what the experts um, are saying, right? And I think that's so important when we're addressing um, these types of issues um, is that at the end of the day, what matters is the well-being of our the citizens, right? Not politics, <laughs> right? And also what Professor Bowen was saying that I think is important is this idea that at the end of the day, what matters is having the political will to be able to make these you know, important decisions, to make the right decisions in order for everybody to be better off in, in the long term. Professors Baker and Bowen contend that there are tools our government isn't using. There are social tools like paid sick leave and scientific ones like contact tracing. Why aren't people interested in these evidence-based solutions? Philosophy may hold the answer. I'm Michael Weisberg. I'm the chair of the philosophy department, and my field within philosophy is philosophy of science. Weisberg has studied all sorts of scientific issues, the controversial ones that tend to be polarized, climate change, evolution, vaccinations. Science has been a lifelong passion, even if its methods have changed. For many, many years from the time I was uh, a little kid, always been really enthusiastic about science. And I remember uh, setting a table on fire with my chemistry set and taking model rockets apart. So naturally, I majored in chemistry in college. And I just assumed that I would become a natural scientist. But Weisberg is a philosopher. 
is a distinction that hasn't always been so clear. In the earliest days of academic inquiry, there, there weren't really the kinds of divisions between areas of knowledge that we now think of. And someone like Aristotle was simultaneously a physicist, a biologist, a logician, a literary theorist, and everything else. And one of the things that's happened as knowledge has, has grown is specialization has happened. Now, when it comes to philosophy of science and the practice of science, the division between the two has, I would say, never quite severed. And certainly in the end of the 19th century and through the early 20th century, many of the great physicists, people like Pierre Duhem, people in the 20th century like Einstein, both wrote about physics and also wrote about philosophical issues. Professor Weisberg studies how the general public understands science differently than scientists do. For scientists, science is messy, full of questions and debate. For people who stop studying science after high school or an intro college class, science might be settled fact, and that difference can cause misunderstandings. The problem with ending your scientific education there is you've learned about the parts of science that are pretty well resolved. So you would come away thinking that science is really just a very, it's a set of facts, things that are settled issues. And of course, there are parts of science where the issues are fairly well settled. If you want to know the atomic number of gold, 79 is the answer. Anything's possible, but it's very unlikely that we're going to find evidence that that's not the case. I think even more importantly, though, is Scientific methods are often taught as the scientific method, as a kind of five-step procedure. And I, it's, I've, I've spoken to many high school teachers about this. I think it's perfectly understandable that you need to give students something concrete to think about, some kind of procedure. But the problem is it makes it seem like it's a mechanical procedure, that first you do some research, and then you come up with a hypothesis, and then you design an experiment, and that definitively tests your hypothesis, and maybe you iterate, but that, that's it. And in reality, sometimes that happens, but not that often. And some fields are very driven by testing hypotheses. Some fields are not at all. Some fields are really driven by doing really detailed field observations or making really precise measurements. In the physical sciences, you often can spend a career just trying to add a decimal place to a measurement to make it more precise. And that involves building a more complex machine or in astronomy, the next generation of instrumentation or the next generation of telescopes lets you look deeper, but it's not really about hypothesis testing in the first instance. You know, there's many, 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 many scientific methods. And again, this gets to what we were discussing before, that if you have fixed in your mind, there's this five-step procedure that science should follow. And then you look at how the discussions of COVID-19 have unfolded over the last few months. It doesn't look anything like those five steps. When we look at areas of science that are highly polarized in this country, like climate change. The polarization happens along for Democrats accepting climate change and people who tend to vote for Republicans less accepting of climate change. Now, if if you identify the subgroup of people who have a much deeper appreciation of scientific method, this is a way this is something that we've been measuring in our research group, most of that polarization disappears. So even very conservative people who have an appreciation for the real nature of scientific inquiry tend to not reject climate change. And the same is true of evolution, the same is true of vaccines. Um, so we suspect that some of what we're seeing in COVID-19 and the public's 
at least some of the public's resistance to it and resistance to wearing masks and other things could be explained by the same mechanism. Weisberg has thought about how the scientific community talks to the general public. And he says a different communication strategy could help bridge the gap. Scientists might be tempted to just simply give the answer as they see it or give the policy or the directive that they think is the right one. But I think it's extremely important to, even if it's in a simple way, talk about the why we know what we know and the how we know what we know and also the uncertainty. So I think if you were just only a little bit paying attention and you saw that the United States government went from telling people, don't worry about wearing a mask to, yeah, maybe it's a good idea to know you need to wear a mask and, but you can wear whatever mask you want to, well, we're not absolutely sure cloth masks are good enough. Make sure it's double layer if you're going to do cloth, but better that you should get a paper mask to than whatever the next thing is. I mean, it's probably completely justifiable why scientists said all of those things in the sequence that they said them. But I think it, I think we need to know more and more needs to be said. So if the answer is we didn't think before that the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 could be in particles of a certain size, but now we do, I think just say that. I think that's very, very important to not allow all scientific discourse to fit into the smallest possible soundbite that TV wants it to be in and to really, for the scientific community to really push to at least have, you know, medium-sized explanations and not just the what, but the how we know explained all the time. So I think that's really important. These days, scientists are on the news almost daily. Weisberg wants them to be loud and emphatic. There's often a kind of debate. Should the scientific community be political? That's how it's often, often framed. And I think this is a really bad framing because... I don't think the scientific community should be partisan. So I don't think the scientific community should say, vote for the Democrats. But I think the scientific community should say, we have a core value. And the core value is using empirical methods to find out what the world is like. And we believe in that so strongly that we think that you should guide your life by this. And here's why. That's the recommendation I'd make. Combine a kind of political stance of reason and evidence with very specific recommendations tied to the reasons for those recommendations and and fight for space. I mean, the forces of darkness in this country know how to use the media to their advantage. So the scientific community needs to learn too. That concludes the first episode in our six-part series, In These Times. We'll be back with episode two, In other times, where we look at health crises of the past, from the plague to the AIDS epidemic, we'll talk with historians and an English professor to see what we can learn if we take a look back. The Omnia Podcast is a production of Penn Arts and Sciences. Special thanks to Professors David Roos, Courtney Bowen, Regina Baker, and Michael Weisberg. I'm Alex Schein. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the Omnia podcast by Pen Arts and Sciences on Apple iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, to listen to all six episodes of In These Times.